What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. God rewards anybody who chases after him. Good morning, everyone. It's Andy. And I have the question here for you just to start out. What happens when you get in the way of God's mission? Wait, Andy, are you saying that I'm getting in the way of the mission of God? Well, anytime I aim to satisfy my own wants, I often disqualify myself from being used of God, right? So yeah, there are many times when I don't reveal the goodness of God in my own life and become a barrier to the mission of God. When I don't bear the fruit of God, How can I possibly be on board with God's kingdom goals, at least at that moment? So what's the solution? From a practical point of view, it means that I need to routinely spend time with God and his people. It means solitude with God, but it also means living amongst a community of people who wish to encourage me towards my continuing faith journey. Now, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through 18? Well, Peter has to go back to Jerusalem and explain how God showed up to a people the Jews didn't believe to be favored by God. It's loaded with history here, but the short version is that the Jews saw themselves to be the only ones chosen by God. So when God pours out his Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles who seek him out, the Jewish believers are, are, well, well, (laughs) you know what? Let's just get into the narrative and see what unfolds. Here we go. Good morning, sir. A servant brightens the well-appointed and comfortable room. Hmm? A groggy Peter begins to stir in his comfortable bed. Ever so politely, the servant chimes in again. Good morning, sir. I hope you slept well. He did. It was one of the most comfortable nights he has ever had. In fact, these past many nights have been thoroughly enjoyable and quite lavish. Peter has never slept, eaten, or experienced so much luxury like this before. Taking in the large bedroom in front of him, Peter wonders to himself, Wow, so this is how it feels to be wealthy. (laughs) Not bad. Feeling the sudden temptation, Peter then shakes his head. Lord, help me not get too used to this. This would not be a good direction for me to go. Finally dressed, Peter exits the room. He walks out into the large inner courtyard and takes in the lush plant life located in the middle of the unroofed atrium. The air is damp and cool, characteristic of any southern Mediterranean beach town. Peter strolls along the paved patio that runs under a columned porch. The rectangle-shaped courtyard acts as a central room and connects with several other rooms on its four sides. It's beautiful to say the least. Nearing a larger alcove, a visiting room that opens into the courtyard at the other end of the atrium, Peter watches a servant spot him. Stopping in his tracks, the servant now walks towards Peter in an effort to gain his attention. Sir, I'm glad I found you. I hate to bother you with this, but you have a visitor in the foyer who insists on talking with you. Oh? Peter asks. Okay, what do I do? "'Sir, I can bring him in if you like,' the servant replies while gesturing to the seating area in the alcove. "'Would you like to meet here?' Peter says, "'Great. Unsure of how to receive a visitor. Uh, "'Do I sit? Do I stand?' 
You look great either way, sir, the servant says before attending to the visitor. Peter watches him leave and laughs at himself, trying to make sense of Roman protocol. Then he wonders who might be in search for him. The servant leads another individual through the wide entryway and announces his arrival. Sir, Peter interrupts, Philip, what are you doing here so early? Raising an eyebrow, the servant watches the two embrace. He backs out of the scene and exits to tend to other matters. The two greet each other as long-lost friends. Holding Peter, his arms extended, Philip sizes him up and says, while taking in the luxurious accoutrements that surround them, So, your situation has improved, I see. It sure beats sleeping with a bunch of animals, doesn't it? Looking down at his own clothing, Peter sheepishly smiles. Yeah, I suppose they have improved. Though I assure you, this is not a permanent arrangement. Uh Uh-huh, Peter teases. (laughs) Enjoy it while it lasts. Philip becomes serious and quiets his voice so as not to be overheard. Look, you need to know why I'm here so early in the morning. I don't know if you've heard the news. What news? Peter jolts his head towards Philip. What do you mean? Peter asks with a new measure of worry. Keeping his voice nearly at a whisper, Philip responds, The word is out. They've heard. Wait, what What are you talking about? Peter asks, digging for clarity. The brothers in Jerusalem have heard what has happened here in Caesarea Maritime. With the Gentiles? They've heard that you've been staying here in a Gentile's home, and a very nice one at that, I might add, Philip says. Peter relaxes and then smiles. Oh, that. He pauses to process. You and I both know it was only a matter of time. You, of all people, knew this would come. Philip responds all too quickly. Yes, but you would do well to put out the fire by going back to Jerusalem. He paces around the room to process. Finally, a thought comes to mind. Remember how you first responded upon hearing what happened when the Samaritans first believed? You must have thought I was out of my mind when I sensed the Spirit directing me to to the Samaritans, right? It took you by surprise, did it not? Peter pauses to take this in. It wasn't that long ago, was it, Peter muses. You're right, Philip. When I heard about how the Samaritans received our Lord, I wasn't sure what to think. Looking back, it was a good thing that I had John to accompany me to witness what you said was happening. If I returned without his testimony... The Jewish believers in Jerusalem would have had me for lunch. A new thought comes into Peter's mind. Just so you know, that's why I brought the six brothers here from Joppa with me. I wasn't about to go at this alone. While we weren't sure what to expect, we knew it would be good to witness whatever God was about to do here together, if for nothing else than to later explain things to the brothers in Jerusalem. You're right. That was smart of you to bring them along, Peter, Philip acknowledges. But with two plus days of walking in front of you, you might want to get going sooner than later. Otherwise, you might have a much bigger problem on your hands. Besides, I would hate to see you get used to so much comfort. Peter laughs and says, You're right, Philip. We would do well to get back to Jerusalem immediately. I would hate to see the work that God has done here to be our undoing back there. Well, the morning is still fresh, Philip agrees. With a focused walk, you might even make it back to Lydda by nightfall. Lydda, Peter says with some surprise. We're not horses, you know. There's no way we can make it back to Lydda by nightfall. Joppa, maybe, but certainly not Lydda. If you keep talking like that, you'll be lucky to make it out of Caesarea by nightfall, Philip chides. You better get moving. Peter agrees and says goodbye to Philip. 
grabbing his few belongings and notifying the other men, Peter also says goodbye to a busy Cornelius who has been working since the early hours. Seeing Peter stick his head in the doorway, Cornelius motions him to come into the room. Standing up from his table, Cornelius respectfully walks over to Peter and gives him a bear hug. I will not forget what you've done for me and my family. Looking him directly in the eyes, Cornelius thanks Peter once more. We are forever in your debt. Released from the hug, Peter reaches up to pat him on the shoulders and says, Again, I'm just a servant of the Lord who sent me. It's his doing, not mine. Backing towards the doorway and looking around the room, Peter continues, Your hospitality was top-notch. A guy can get used to this. He winks and turns to exit the doorway. In a rush, Peter gathers the other men, who have also enjoyed such pleasant hospitality, and they quickly exit the home. Getting up in the early hours of the morning after a brief overnight stay at Simon the Tanner's home in Joppa, Peter hugs his wife and says goodbye. I don't know how long I'll be, but I know the matter is urgent. Moving from the temperate Mediterranean climate into the hills of Judea, the men notice a number of changes in their environment. The sun seems brighter, the air is drier, and the walk becomes more strenuous. Working through the ravines that twist upward along the road from Lydda to Jerusalem, the seven take in the more arid environment around them. The final leg, gentlemen, one of Peter's men shares aloud. Kiriat Urim is just ahead. Looking toward a grove of trees, Peter looks back at his men to engage them. You guys know what happened here, right? The men look at one another without an answer. Finally, one of the men chimes in. I'm pretty sure we've had lunch here at one time. This elicits a laugh from the others while Peter shakes his head. No, you knuckleheads, Peter says, trying to get serious. He then laughs and gets into his story. The Philistines were waging war with Israel at Aphek, just a few hills away from here. Israel was taking a major thrashing in this particular battle, and somebody from Israel came up with the bright idea to fetch the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the very epicenter of God's presence with Israel. Like a good luck charm, Israel thought, hey, if we bring the Ark into battle, God will surely win this war for us. So they did. Have you ever regretted making a major decision out of fear and on an impulse? Yeah, so did Israel. Not only were a number of lives lost, the high priest of Israel, Eli, lost his two sons and successors that day, and the Philistines commandeered the Ark of God. Hearing that Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, the sworn enemies of Israel at the time, Eli fell backwards off his seat, broke his neck, and died. Yikes, one of the men shares. Yikes indeed, Peter responds. The Philistines possessing the ark thought, hey, this is good. God is obviously now on our side. But that line of thinking didn't bode so well for the Philistines. The Philistines placed the ark in their own shrines of worship, and after returning the next day, something was disturbed in their shrines. Their gods had toppled to the ground, shattering into pieces. What's worse is that the people from the first city were struck with a plague of tumors, and if that wasn't bad, then rats were unleashed upon the town. The ark was moved to then another town, and the same thing happened in that town. Then another town, and another town after that. Finally, by the fifth town, the Philistine leaders agreed to get the ark away from them. Seven months of bad news. Many Philistines died and greatly suffered from it. So the city leaders put the ark on a new cart, attached a team of two highly prized cows, they had recently birthed calves, to the cart, and sent the cows on their way. 
the cows freely took the ark over to Bet Shemesh, carrying an offering of appeasement in the shape of golden rats and tumors. All was good again, right? Peter asks. Right, say some of the men. Well, that's what the people of Bet Shemesh thought. That is, until some of the folks opened the lid and looked inside the ark. Yeah, not a good call. Thousands of Bet Shemites lost their lives that day. Freaked out by the presence of the Lord in their city, they felt helpless and incapable of pleasing him, so they called for the people here in Kiriat-Urim to remove the ark from them. So the men of the village came down, retrieved the ark from the grieving remnants of folks from Bet Shemesh, and brought it up the hill to this place. The ark rested in the home of a man named Abinadab for years, and his son was dedicated to care for it. You want to know what happened? Riveted by the story of Israel's past from a thousand years before, the men respond, Yes. What happened to the people in Kiriat-Urim? Were they killed like the people in Bet Shemesh? You would think so, says Peter, but they weren't. The ark rested there for more than 20 years. That is until King David came for it later. So what happened? Curiously enough, right after the incident in Bet Shemesh, the prophet Samuel called all of Israel and told them to get right with God. Unfortunately, Israel had long since strayed away. Then again, without the Spirit of God changing their hearts, how could they not stray away? Arriving at a bluff overlooking Jerusalem, Peter remarks under his breath, Here we go. The large walls of the city loom before them, and the seven men walk towards the middle of the city. Not much has changed since we've been here last, one of the men shares. Nope, says another. Remaining quiet as the men weave their way through town, Peter finally gathers them for some final instruction. Guys, I need you to get a good read of the situation before we go in. Many are going to be very upset with me. It stands to reason that they will find fault with you as well. Please, let me speak to the others when we arrive and do not offer unless anything unless asked. The right time will present itself for your testimonies of what happened with the Gentiles. The men agree and Peter knocks on a door. The door opens, and a towboy greets him. He cleans the feet of each man who has arrived and makes small talk, mussing the boy's hair as a way of showing of appreciation. The last man moves into the small courtyard of the home. Pleasantries are made, and updates are provided. However, the Jerusalem leaders are anxious to address the elephant in the room. We've arranged for a meal, and we know how you're tired from the journey. But Peter, you know this can't wait, one of the men shares. Another leader interrupts with a tone of accusation. He says, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You know this to be unlawful, and it's a major issue with us. Peter puts his hands up in a gesture to calm his accusers down. Gentlemen, let's not get hasty here. I need you to hear me out. The others recognize how they've quickly escalated the matter and take a moment to breathe. Seeing them relax, Peter slows the tempo of his own delivery. Lord... Help me explain this right, he prays. Then aloud, he moves forward with his defense. I was in the city of Joppa praying on top of Simon the Tanner's roof. He's a great guy, by the way, especially in the way that he and his wife have made a home for my wife and me. Anyway, as I was praying, I fell into a trance-like state, and I saw a huge blanket being lowered by its four corners down from the sky. It was right in front of me, and on top of the blanket were a number of four-footed animals— wild beasts, reptiles, birds, and even insects that were crawling around, doing what it is that animals do. 
The others, now fascinated by this vision, urged Peter to continue. Encouraged, Peter goes on. So I heard a voice. Nobody else was around, mind you. It was just me and this huge blanket filled with animals in front of me. And the voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Looking at the animals and the fact that there were many unclean animals on the blanket, I looked around as if to protest this unseen voice. I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But the voice responded, what God has cleansed, you may no longer consider as unholy or unclean. This happened three times, if for nothing else to stress the point. Then the blanket of animals and critters raised back into the sky. The leaders look at each other and back at Peter. What does this mean? One of them asks. Well, that was my question, Peter responds. But wait until you hear what happened next. I hear another voice, but this wasn't an external voice. This voice came from the back of my mind. And as the sun rises to give light to the land, it became very clear to me. The Spirit of God told me to go downstairs and meet three people, Gentiles no less, who had been sent from Caesarea Maritime to find me and take me back with them. What? Out of nowhere? asks another man. So it would seem, Peter says. The Spirit prompted me to go with them without hesitation. What else was I to do? Do I say no to God? So I went with them. But I thought it would be a good idea to bring these six men with me, Peter gestures to the men beside him. Without speaking, many of Peter's men nod in affirmation. We arrived in Caesarea and went to the man's house. He met us at the door and shared what had happened, Peter explains. The idea of Peter entering into a Gentile's home reveals a level of discomfort among the Jerusalem brothers, but this does not distract Peter. The man said he had seen an angel standing right in front of him. The angel then instructed him to send for me so I could share a message that would save him as well as his household. So I spoke about Jesus and our time spent with him, his rejection by the Jewish leaders and his brutal death and his brilliant resurrection. I spoke about all these things and then it happened. Their eyes refocused back on Peter's. What do you mean, what happened, they asked. Peter pauses for what seems to be an eternity. The Holy Spirit fell upon the man and all of his guests, just as he had when we first encountered him here in Jerusalem at the temple. The men paused to look at each other in disbelief. Peter continues, We heard it ourselves. Other languages were being spoken, and get this, Hebrew was one of the languages. Hebrew! I then remembered the words of Jesus when we were with him. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter then looks at the Jerusalem church leaders without missing a beat. If God has given these guys the same Holy Spirit that he gave to us when we believed in Jesus, then even these Gentiles have God's approval. Guys, who am I to get in the way of that? Furthermore, who are you to get in the way of God's work? Cut to the quick, the Jerusalem leaders grow quiet and begin processing. Finally, one of the men speaks up. Well then, it's settled. God has given the Gentiles the same opportunity for eternal life as he has given us. Like us, through their repentance, they can be permanently forgiven through the promise of the new covenant blessings. With this clear statement of understanding, the others chime in and begin speaking words of praise to God. So it seems that God likes them every bit as he likes us. 
Peter turns and faces the one who says this. Yep, God plays no favorites. He is simply interested in those who chase after him. At the end of the day, we need to simply ask ourselves these questions, folks. Are we chasing after God? Are we aiming to search him out that we might be influenced by him? Think about this. We allow all sorts of influences into our lives, and our values often reflect such influences. I've said this to my own kids and to many parents while working with their kids. Whoever spends the most time with my kids wins. Wins their attention, wins their affection, and eventually their values. Now, while this doesn't mean that we spend 100% of our time hanging with those who have the exact same values as us, Look, that would make us useless for our very purpose to extend the light of the kingdom of heaven into the dark kingdom of Satan. But it does mean that we need to spend time realigning ourselves with Jesus on a frequent and routine basis. That's what Jesus meant when he spoke of himself as the vine. Apart from remaining attached to him, being the branches, we can do nothing of value for the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the verse in John 15, 1-8. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Abide or live, or however you'd like to say that. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Did you catch that? A branch cannot produce any sort of kingdom-oriented fruit, eternal bearing fruit, spirit-given fruit if severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, and those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. That's the catalyst for our fruit production, for our kingdom mindset, our kingdom goals, only can happen for those who remain in him. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. There's no benefit of them not being remained. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, because this brings great glory to my Father. This advances the kingdom of heaven. Guys, gals, let's get practical for a moment. We know God rewards those who sincerely seek Him. That's the gist of this entire narrative here in Acts 11. So, in an effort to be fruitful for the mission of the kingdom of heaven, we must be routinely reattaching ourselves to the vine. We must intentionally be moving back towards connecting with Jesus. So, what does your calendar look like? (laughs) What does your routine look like? For me... I have to be really purposeful to include this time with God on a regular basis. It involves personal time, but it also involves community. You know, if I don't have a number of people who encourage me towards such attached divine living, let me tell you, I'm a dead man. There is no way I can be fruitful for the kingdom of heaven without spending time with others who have a similar kingdom mindset. If I I fall away and I get into some pretty negative habits... Look, I've got the same 24 hours as you, and I have to fill my day just like you. So for me, without regular times of connectedness to God, I won't be able to carry out his kingdom of heaven goals, which is the very reason why I've been called by God in the first place. 
The kingdom of heaven goals requires kingdom of heaven fruit, and fruit like this can only come from being attached to Jesus. And this Jesus made possible, even for us Gentiles, to know and to love him. Well, that's it for this week, guys. I hope you have a very fruitful time, not only connecting with God, but watching the fruit of God bear in your lives. Have a wonderful week. Bye.